What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, Stephen, I love that so much. I had I had Orson Welles reading The Selfish Giant on a record. That I listened to when I was about five or six, and I used to This is my garden. <laughs> it is it is so brilliant. Anyone find it, everybody should listen to it. The children are my flowers. Yes, it's flowers. I only have to hear those and I can smell an old-fashioned gramophone and the reference <laughs> that went on. You know that dusty I smell should. as it warmed up and the <laughs> crackle. Hello, I'm Mini Driver, and welcome to Mini Questions. I've always loved Proust's Questionnaire. It was originally an 18th century parlor game meant to reveal an individual's true nature. But with so many questions, there wasn't really an opportunity to expand on anything. So I took the format of Proust's Questionnaire and adapted what I think are seven of the most important questions you could ever ask someone. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that has grown out of a personal disaster? The more people we ask, the more we begin to see what makes us similar and what makes us individual. I've gathered a group of really remarkable people who I'm honoured and humbled to have had a chance to engage with. In last week's episode, we heard Stephen's answers to when and where were you happiest. 
you think of something, a sunny day uh, on the beach or in a park. Uh, it may be that you were very young, so your mothers let you skip along to buy an ice cream. And you're looking down at the ducks with your brother and everybody's with you and you're content. You then do something physical like pull at your earlobe. The idea being all you have to do is twist your earlobe and you will get that memory. What relationship, real or fictionalised, defines love for you? And love, 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 and all you need is love, and love this and love that, and I, it made no sense. And then suddenly it hit me that it was the only thing in the world that mattered, that nothing else had any significance at all except this absolute loss of self into the idea of someone else. And what person, place or experience has most altered your life? I said, I've seen this thing, and I explained it. She said, oh, that was the importance of being earnest. Here is the last part of our conversation. If you could have any question answered, what would it be? <sighs> Such a good question itself. <laughs> this one. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, somebody so, else, answer this question for me. That's what I'd like. <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, at the risk of sounding very... Uh, <laughs> I'm always going to sound pompous, but the extra pompous. I am very interested in those, to call them philosophical questions, it instantly makes them sound like a sort of game or an intellectual quest. And I think they're more exciting than that, although those are exciting things in themselves. Those do actually sound quite fun. Yeah, they do. I hope so. An intellectual quest. Yeah. It is the nature of consciousness. It's how it is that we can have this sense of self of who we are manufactured in a wet but electrically sparkling object like a brain in our heads, that it can create such a powerful sense of self that is not just the thing you see in the mirror, whose voice you hear in your own ears and whose effect you see in other people, but it's also the entire sense of moral obligation, guilt, shame, love, passion, all these things that animate us and that drive us. And uh, I just feel very strongly that it won't survive after my heart stops beating, except in other people's memories or in you know, recordings and this podcast, all the rest of it. And yet that, that isn't satisfactory. It's still a mystery. And it is still a mystery. It's known in philosophy as the hard problem the hard problem of consciousness. And people have come up with ideas that are crazy. I mean, they're matrix-like. The universe itself is conscious, that there is a consciousness in the universe. And this is said by philosophers of great eclat in universities around the world. It just fascinates me because I look at animals, and I love animals. We have a sense, don't we? It's very hard to prove, but I think we prove it to ourselves in all the ways that matter that animals don't share this particular quality of self-consciousness. Yes, we've all seen a cat look a bit ruffled and embarrassed when it's fallen over and it sort of <laughs> it sort of proudly sits up. So, you know, we impute very human ideas of dignity and, and self-regard to certain animals that we live with closely. And of course, animals that live with us closely mimic us just as we mimic them. But 
The animal kingdom generally, I look, say, uh, uh, this is the animal I use because I'm so fond of them, but an Amazonian tree frog uh, on a branch <laughs> with that enormous grin on its face and those wonderful sort of silicon rubber fingers with the little round ends clutching onto the branch. And I see in that tree frog an animal that spends 100% of its time being a tree frog, achieving tree frogness completely. And I am as certain as I can be of anything that it doesn't wake up in the morning thinking I was a terrible tree frog yesterday. I hate myself. Look what I did to, 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 my, to Mrs. Tree Frog. Look, look how I ignored my children. You know, in any sense like that. And you laugh because it is, of course, preposterous to imagine a tree frog thinking that. But every single human being on earth does that all the time. We don't feel we are 100% what we could be. And that's a most peculiar thing, a very, very strange thing. If we accept that no animal has this sense of yearning to be better, yearning to have a greater moral force, yearning to, to achieve more. Yes, they want to have a fuller belly. Yes, they want to get their rocks off. Or yes, they want to protect their brood. Of course, they have these urges and instincts, but they're very clear, very evolutionarily necessary and, and transparent as motives and energies, as it were. But what philosophers call our deontic sense, this sense of obligation and moral purpose that we have within us, what Immanuel Kant said, this moral law within me. It's a very strong sense. And we can argue that it's all kinds of people do. There's a Freudian argument about it. There's a religious argument about it. There's all kinds of explanations for why we might have it. And it, they go back to Genesis. For Genesis is because they ate the, the fruit. It's part of our particular evolution. It is. It is something that evolved. The, the tree frog went, nah, mate. I'm not evolving any moral nightmare. Yes. I'm not going to judge anything except how much I think I'm going to get to eat today. Mm. I feel like it's the gift and the curse that we carried on exploring. We carried yes. on growing. We carried on expanding this species that we are part of. And there is great joy in that. And there is awfulness in that. It's the experience. It's the Rilke idea of learning to love the questions. Yes. No, that's right. We made at some point in our history what some people call the cognitive leap, which involves both behavioural modernity, I think is the correct phrase for it, i.e. tool making. So first we started altering the environment around us to create objects and spaces that were useful to us in a way that was beyond animals. An animal might make a nest, but it's the same nest th through the generations. Right. That's how bluebirds make their nest. Whereas two different humans in just two generations can say, no, I'm going to build my nest like this, and I'm going to use this. And another one will say, oh, I'm going to repurpose this hole in here. I'm going to... That's behavioral modernity, which is one branch of our evolution. And uh, another, of course, was language. But the, the big question and part of the hard problem is, did language come as a result of self-consciousness or did self-consciousness come as a result of language? Which is what Jaynes would say, who wrote this fantastic book, which is a huge influence on me, called, this is such a terrible title, that's the, the origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Jesus. 
gosh. I know. It's an absurd title. I bet that doesn't come in a paperback. <laughs> no, it's, I think it's on Audible. <laughs> oh, good. Great. Are you reading it? Because I'll get it if you are. No, I'm not. I'd love to if it's not on Audible. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, I'd recommend anyone to read it. It's not too tough a read. It's beautifully written. And I'm not saying I agree with all of it, but it, it probably expresses these questions I'm trying to articulate uh, better than any book I've ever read. And like all things to do with learning... The more you know, the more filled with wonder you are, not the less. Explanations don't close down beauty and miracle. They open them up. That's my firm conviction. Another great hero of mine, Richard Feynman, had a fabulously famous, not rant, but sort of spiel about this, where he's explaining to an artist why he finds a flower more beautiful than the artist does. And in fact, Feynman, curse him, was a wonderful draftsman, drew and painted fabulously, as well as getting a Nobel Prize for physics and all the other things he did. But he explained how you know, he, he had the sense of the flower's fragility, the beauty, the, the shimmering of the colour, the erotic quality, like someone like Mapplethorpe found in flowers, you know, all these things he could see. But then he also knew enough biology to have an understanding of the sepals and stamens and all the other. But he could go deeper than that. He could look into the capillary system and see how the energy of the food and sugar and starches that were going from the ground and how they were selected by the flower's roots and how they moved. And he could go deeper into that and he could see the protons and the positrons and he could see the electrons. He could see the whole miracle of the universe focusing its astonishing nature into the creation of a flower. And as he says, you know, we stop, look at a, a red flower. How is it red? Well, it's all very well to say its DNA tells it to go red, but how does it then do it? It has to select out of the chemicals that are in the earth, only the ones which, when put together in its little factory, make the colour red. If I took a handful of earth, I couldn't make a red dye out of it, not as red as a dahlia. And it's true of the animals. All those colours come from the food and drink that they eat. Um, energized by the sunlight and 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 they can be that blue or that yellow and they're just growing out of a garden in Dorking you know <laughs> there's all that color and we don't even stop to think about where it actually comes from it's fantastic we are distracted yeah and so I'd like to know why I'm aware of this I'd like to know where my awareness comes from I'm just so fascinated by it because it's so possible to live fabulous lives as a tiger can without it. I like that. I like that very, very, <laughs> very, very much. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to Across Generations where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, 
Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Can you tell me about one particular thing that has grown out of a complete disaster. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, my whole life. Alan Cumming, I asked Alan this question, and I said, so so can you tell me something that's grown out of a personal disaster? And he was like, yeah, me. <laughs> well, yes, I would say. <laughs> I've, read his, I've read his incredible book about his father. I mean, what a man he is. He's such a fabulous... Oh, oh he's amazing. He's amazing. But again, if you haven't read Alan Cumming's book... Not my father's son heart-wrenching and brilliant. It is. And, of course, he's produced a line of fragrance. 
Yeah, of course he has. If your name was Cumming, you would want to advise people to spread Cumming all over their face, wouldn't you? I mean, it's just, oh it's too yes, good a you joke. Yes, you would. It's too good. Not <laughs> Tell me about growth and personal disaster. One of my passions was Sherlock Holmes at school. And I had been the youngest member of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. And, and I got this request, uh, no, not request, it was an invitation to all members to go to a meeting in London of the Sherlock Holmes Society. And I was going to present a paper. I was going to do a talk on the correlation between T.S. Eliot and Moriarty. Oh, my God. <laughs> villain of Sherlock Holmes. Yes, it was the fact that McCavity, the mystery cat, is directly based on Moriarty. A lot of not people hadn't noticed that, and I had. I didn't know that. But anyway, I'm so so that was my big thing. And I got permission from my housemaster to go to London. People who've read Harry Potter know what housemasters are now. Thank goodness I don't have to explain. It's my Minerva McGonagall or whatever. <laughs> my, my Severus Snape signed it. Your Maggie Smith. My Maggie Smith signed a chit so that I could go to London. Anyway, the idea was I'd go for this event, stay overnight, and then come back the next day. Well, the next day I went to the cinema. And in those days, you could go into a cinema and sit there all day and they'd just watch, show the same film again and again. And I saw the film Cabaret again and again and again. Mm. I was absolutely overwhelmed by it. And then I went to the, see The Godfather and then I went to see Fritz the Cat, which was an animated adult cartoon. I remember that. I was 15, but somehow I could pass as 18 if I sort of I had quite, my voice had just broken and it was quite deep. And anyway, I got expelled from the school. I was sent to another school, which I got expelled from, and then another one. And then I ran away to London. And then I stole some credit cards from a coat in a pub. And eventually I was caught by the police in Swindon, of all unromantic towns, and uh, sent to a prison to await trial. How old were you? Uh, by this time, I had I, 17. Oh, you were a baby. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Golly. And you were sent to proper prison. Yeah, and I had spent this credit card over so many different counties that it took about <laughs> two and a half to three months for all the paperwork to be assembled by the police for me then to go to a court. Now, because I'd run away from home, I'd originally not told them who, what my name was because I didn't want my parents to get involved because I'd already caused them enough trouble with all these expulsions. But eventually they found out who I was and uh, my parents got a friend of theirs who was a barrister to come and represent me when I was in court. And the fact that I'd done three months in prison on remand and that it was a first offence, and I guess that I had an expensive lawyer <laughs> that my parents, who was, except he wasn't charging, he was being a friend, meant that instead of going down for two years' detention centre or Borstal or anything like that, a young person's offenders institution, I was put on two years' probation. And you can imagine the car driving home from Wiltshire to Norfolk. And that's just, I mean, and my parents, you know, they're just they're wonderful, supportive, lovely people. And my mother never doubted somehow everything would turn out right. But, and my father was more taciturn about it. But they basically said, it's up to me now. They put me through enough schools. And it was while I was in prison that something had snapped. And I think it was really that for about a month, I was sharing a cell with this kid from Wales who was about... 16 and a half, 17, he was just a bit younger than me. And he couldn't read. He literally was illiterate. I'd never seen anything. I just never occurred to me that someone would be. And I taught him. I taught him the alphabet. I taught him to write it out. And I, I taught him basic words in that time. It was an extraordinary experience. And it, it hammered home to me like a sledgehammer, the extraordinary 
just how I had wasted these golden opportunities. Because, you know, I'm not painting myself as some Francis of Assisi or, or, or Albert Schweitzer, you know. I, I wasn't suddenly turned into this humanitarian philanthropist, but I did see that my opportunities had been so much greater than anybody else's and that it was a disgrace for me to moan inside and to think that the world was against me, I needed no more education and all of that. And so I said that if I get out, when I get out of this, I'm going to put myself through and get to university. And I'd always set my heart on Cambridge, a lot of my sort of hearers, E.M. Forster and people like that. So I went to the library and took out past papers on Oxbridge entrance and paid someone. I took jobs in re restaurants and bars and things and paid someone to invigilate because they didn't at the local college do Oxbridge entrance. And I paid him to invigilate so he could get the papers and make sure I wasn't cheating and I'd hand him them and he'd send them. And my parents knew I was doing this and they were very supportive. So I was still living at home. And then I got fed up waiting for the results to come through of my Cambridge entrance. So I, I went into Norwich one day and I was in a cafe and I told my mother, I said, I'm going in. If a letter comes for me and it looks as if it might be the results, you can open it and ring me at this cafe. And so she called. Uh, I was in the cafe with friends and I said, hey, did a letter arrive? She said, no. I said, well, why are you calling me? She said, no, it wasn't a letter, it was a telegram. I said, a telegram? What? My, you know, immediately feeling guilty. I've been found out about something extra. I said, no, it says, congratulations, awarded scholarship, Queen's College admissions tutor. I said, read that again. She read it again. So I'd not just got in, I got the, I got the scholarship. And I, oh. I see it's slightly making me cry remembering it because it was those moments that, that, that were the pivot on which my whole life turned from, from what, what had been failure and disgrace and uh, sliding down into a sort of self-pitying mess. I'd just pulled myself up by, by my fingernails in time. And, and then really going to Cambridge and as I say, meeting Emma and then Hugh and loving it so much and feeling a part of it, feeling as if I belonged for the first time in a world where ideas were spoken about and where I could perform and feel natural and be out. I could be gay and nobody minded. And so it was that. It was being, it was, I, I present it as a cartoon of me lying face down on stone flags with straw and the shadows of the prison and a rat crawling over my back. It wasn't quite that bad, but you know what I mean? From that low point, it was a miracle that I was able, um, and it, I'm fully aware that a lot of it was the advantage of my upbringing, but but I just don't think you can have one without the other. I just, I don't think of it in terms of payment, that those hardships are payment for the good, but that they are inextricably linked. They are, they are part of the same experience. I do wonder what happened to that Welshman who you taught to read. Yes, I lost touch with him, of course. It must be funny for him to see you, because I'm sure that he's seen you in his life. And yeah. They, they called me in prison, they called me the professor. That was my nickname. Did they? Because I sort of knew things and had read books. And I'm imagining you rather like um, Hugh Grant in Paddington too. <laughs> I'd love to think I was as stylish, but there was an element of that, yeah. And I also played the piano at the Sunday, uh, there were hymns, voluntary hymns in the association room, and I used to play the piano. And I'm not at all good, but I, uh, you know, I'm a typical show-off, so I, uh, you know, I, I learned these kind of arpeggios and things so i would end these ordinary hymns with this these huge arpeggios and then dum da dum 
Dum, 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 dum. The chaplain would look at me to check whether I'd finished. And it was very silly, but and of course, you know, fun in its way. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to Across Generations where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. 
In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. To, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, what would be your last meal? <laughs> I love it because it's a Proustian question, but it's also so fundamentally human. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And I go two ways, and that strikes at the heart of what a lot of us are like, I think, is that one part of me wants to say, Riet um, de Vaux um, a la Véronique or whatever, you know, some fantastic meal Super that, fancy. I, that I once had at the waterside or the fat duck or some, you know, and I've been lucky enough to have some great food in my time. But another part of me wants to say, I want beans on toast with a couple of poached eggs. Yeah, I want that right now. <laughs> and I, Yeah, I think I would probably go for that. And, you know, once like that with music and literature, do I want to listen to Wagner now or actually would just... Uh, Ace of bass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with just some, some silly, silly, charming music do me quite happily. Let's put on the kinks just for fun, you know. And the point is, we're lucky because we can have both. I remember Richard Curtis saying this to me, you know, the great writer of so many popular British films and, uh, of course, a colleague of Rowan's in the early days and, and the founder of Comic Relief and much else. And he has a passion for pop music. And in his youth, he, once it was possible, he recorded every single Top of the Pops. And his close friend at Oxford with Rowan was Howard Goodall, the composer who wrote the Blackadder theme and the Vicar of Diddley theme and other things that Richard had done, as well as many, many other successful things. He's a wonderfully talented man. And, of course, he's also done documentaries about classical music for BBC Two and Channel Four. And I remember sitting in, I was a bit junior because I was two years below them when I, and I was at Cambridge and I'd only just got to know them. And Richard was saying how, you know, he, he was going to send some singles to Howard, you know, of this particular bands that he should listen to. And Howard said, well, I'll send you some Marla then, and you listen to that. And Richard said, well, I'll try and listen to it, but I should warn you that I, my mind and soul are not deep enough to appreciate it. I'm a very light fellow, and all I need is light entertainment. <laughs> and I remember thinking how very charming to confess such a thing. This is a man who got a double first at Oxford, you know, so he's no idiot. <laughs> but also, I wonder if that's true. I mean, I wonder if that is it. And, and I thought, well, maybe for him it is. Maybe also with Richard, he doesn't want to investigate shine torches into dark and upsetting parts of his mind. Maybe there have to be people who are the champions of the confection that makes us happy. Mm. of the things which allow us to just remain. I mean, I, I feel like his films particularly just allow you to live in a place where it's clever and it's funny and there's community yes. and shit works out. Yeah, which is why I adore P.G. Woodhouse as well. <laughs> exactly. I love Woodhouse for that reason. Exactly. It's, it's always sunny. and But Wild is the same. Things work out in Wild and things really don't work out in Wild. I mean, Wild is the nascent point of the 
Oscar, of course, put it very brilliantly in, into the mouth of Miss Prism in The Governess in The Importance of Being Earnest in a, in a, a brilliantly clever line which she says, although she doesn't know how clever it is as she says it. She's admitting to her pupil, uh, Cicely, um, that she, in an earlier life, had written a three-volume novel. Do not speak slightingly of the three-volume novel, Cicely. I myself, in happier days, wrote one. And Cicely says, oh, did it end happily? And, <laughs> and Miss Prism says, the good ended happily, the bad ended unhappily. That is what fiction means, which is yes. a brilliant line. And that is it. That's brilliant. I remember when I first read, say, Evelyn War, and I was shocked by that it how, didn't work many, out. <laughs> how many times cruel and dreadful things happen to people who don't deserve it. I felt the same way reading Graham Greene. I agree. Exactly. Why do terrible things happen oh, to lovely people yeah. and the awful people don't get punished? <laughs> and why do lovely things happen to terrible people? Exactly. I completely agree with you. And it used to make me crazy when I was a kid. And it still does, by the way. And Wilde was prefiguring a 20th century in which maybe the good wouldn't end happily and, the, and fiction would start to mean mm. something else. Mm. But of course, his joke of saying that's what fiction means is, in other words, it's a lie. <laughs> and so that's, yeah, that's a very strong part of it. And I was had the pleasure, it's one of the great joys of marrying someone younger than yourself, is you can very often introduce them to things they've somehow missed and that you, of course, have caught and think everybody in the world had seen it, but he'd never seen Singing in the Rain. Oh, I love that film. And we, we watched it together. He's now seen it three times because he was so overwhelmed by it. And as he said, he said, I've never seen anything that so radiates joy from start to finish. Mm -hmm. It is joyful. And, and I remember thinking when he said it, of course, that's right. That's what it is. To see Donald O'Connor singing Make Him Laugh just fills you with joy. It is beautiful. Every single number in that in that movie and the way that it's woven together. It is pure joy. And do you know, do you know the work of Preston Sturgis, the, the great American, but I'm sure you do. And, and he was a writer director for those who don't know, who operated in the forties and fifties and wrote some extraordinary masterpieces of, of film which he directed as well with furious pace. And one of them is called Sullivan's Travels. And you may know something about it because it was a huge influence on the Coen brothers. It's about a, a film director who's like Preston Sturgis, a director of comedies. It's during the Depression. And he's determined that his next movie won't be a comedy because there are people out there suffering. And they're, you know, the bums on the trains, they're out of work. He's got to make a movie that is for them. And he's got the movie in his head. It's going to be called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which, if it's you remember, the, the Coen brothers, brothers then went on you. to make as a film. Yeah. But he, that's the film he's going to make. And his girlfriend is Veronica Lake, and he's got these, he's got butlers, and that's wonderful Beverly Hills lifestyle. He decides to become a bum. He throws away all his good clothes and puts on uh, Tramp's clothes, gets in a boxcar on a train, and goes through a series of circumstances beyond his control. He gets accused of murder. <laughs> and no one believes that he's a film director. And he goes to a prison, this hideous prison, where he's chained up and uh, he's beaten and uh, he lives this terrible life. And the prisoners around him, of course, are absolutely at the lowest ebb a human being can be in America, chained together, 
And eventually he behaves well enough. He's tamed so that he's allowed a privilege of going. And you don't know what it is as you're watching the film. You see suddenly this church, a black church, a black Baptist church, where all the worshippers have just finished singing a hymn. And the preacher gets up and says to his flock that, well, you know, we have our guests now and we're to treat them with great politeness. And someone is pulling a sheet down uh, at the back of the hall and in come chained all the prisoners and they're welcomed by these church members and they're sat down and film begins. And you see Joel McRae, who plays Sullivan, sitting there looking angry and all the prisoners around him, they're miserable, miserable men. And they start with this Disney cartoon, a violent, silly cartoon, and everyone starts laughing and laughing and laughing, and you see Joel McRae, he's the only one not laughing, a face like thunder, and slowly his face cracks, and he starts to laugh, and they're all laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing, and it's transformation. Anyway, then the plot carries on, and finally someone sees his photograph, who's uh, the friendly warden or whoever it is, and he tells the prison people, and it's discovered who he is, and the person he was accused of killing was himself. That was what he was trying to explain, that he was the one he was accused of killing. So it was all very complicated. He gets back to the studio, and the producers, who so hated the idea of making Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, say, now you can make Oh Brother, Where Art You? You're world famous. You, you went down, you put a bum, and John McRae says, no. I'm not going to make Oh Brother, We're Out There. I'm going to make a comedy. And then the film ends with this speech. Laughter may not be much, but it's all some people have in this crazy caravan. Boy. And that's it. And then the, the fade in to the sight of all those prisoners with tears running down their faces, laughing and laughing and laughing. So basically, you want to be eating beans on toast with two poached eggs, watching yeah. Sullivan's Travels. Yeah. I love that movie, but I would venture that The Lady Eve... Is the better film, I grant you. It's well, a masterpiece. It, it also made me feel, apart from that Henry Fonda was, was the most handsome person I was ever going to see in my life. And lovable. It made me believe that, that odd people can find each other. Yes. And I knew I was odd. That's all I knew. And that just, it always made me think that there was hope. <laughs> yeah. And Barbara Stanwyck. Oh my God, she was so divine. She was divine, one of the divine, true beautiful. Greats. She Great. really was. Yeah. Clever and beautiful. When she trips him up in the, on the boat. Oh, I know. God. Heaven. And so that's if you're listening and you don't know the work of Preston Sturgis, treat it's yourself worth, this yes. weekend to a box set of Preston Sturgis. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely cannot thank you enough. Minnie, it's been such a pleasure. I've taken notes as you were speaking. There are books I'm going to read. There are words I'm going to look up. There are movies I'm going to watch. And there's beans on toast to be made immediately. I, I just completely adore you. And I so appreciate what you put out into the world. Genuinely. Oh, it's thank amazing. you, darling. That is so sweet of you. Bless you. And th I love you too. And thank you for inviting me onto your wonderful program and asking those questions. You're very, very, very welcome. So right. appreciative. Mwah. Farewell. <laughs> Stephen Fry's latest book, Troy, is out now from Chronicle Books in the US. It is the brilliant conclusion to his best-selling Mythos trilogy. Stephen's next book, Fry's Ties, is out in November in the UK, published by Penguin Michael Joseph, and it is a witty, illustrated ode to his decades-long obsession with ties. 
Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Mini Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Way basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Way with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowe, Roland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael dura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts